God bless you, everybody. Thank you guys for going as ambassadors uh, of the Lord Jesus and representatives of this church. I love the approach Jonathan was sharing with us, relational evangelism. So that kind of presumes you have to know not only the gospel, but you also have to have some people skills. You have to be approachable and warm and friendly. And uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight, becoming a little more skillful in developing and sustaining relationships. And uh, a verse of scripture uh, triggered that whole thought in my mind. I know we're in Romans, but let me, let me open our discussion tonight with a verse from Ephesians. Of course, it's by the same author, Paul. Listen to what it says, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, Paul said, but speaking the truth in, how would you complete that? Yeah, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth has to do with what's in our head, and doing so in love has to do with what's in our hearts. In other words, it's a matter of balance. We have to be right, for sure, about what we believe, but we also have to be friendly and relational in the process of declaring what we believe. And so Paul says in Ephesians, we are to grow up, he says, in all aspects into him. I knew a brilliant seminary professor once. In fact, I had the privilege of being one of his students, and he was uh, uh, intellectually... Uh, in a league of his own. He was a genius. He spoke seven Semitic languages, uh, Ugaritic and all this stuff. I mean, he was just brilliant, written many books and all the rest, but he was very deficient in relating to students and fellow faculty members. He was not very well liked, though he was respected uh, for his intellect. He would cut people off in the midst of what they were saying in conversation. He would break eye contact and be distracted by almost everything. He would become easily irritated and angry. He was a very, very poor listener. He was intellectually well-developed, but he was relationally underdeveloped. And I think that sort of put a cap on his ministry influence. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he said we are to grow up in all aspects into him. Now, before we get into the text, I wanted to show you a very simple way. This is helpful to me. I hope it is to you, whereby we can be uh, a little more skillful relationally. And to do this, I asked Pam earlier if she would join me, and she is a very brave lady for saying yes. I can't believe. Would you please welcome Pam? Pam, here's your very own microphone. This is just what you expected tonight, isn't it? No. <laughs> Thanks for looking so thrilled and excited. <laughs> so uh, Pam is a uh, flight attendant, is that correct? Yes. For how long? 19 years. 19 years. And uh, I guess we could ask, what airline? Southwest Airlines. Southwest is a good one. We like Southwest. Bags fly <laughs> free. So there, you got a little marketing. We do. So I wanted Pam to help me do this because um, we're going to do a little role play with a point, and it takes place on an airplane. And Pam 
has lived the better part of her life on an airplane. So what we're going to do, Pam and I, let's say, are sitting next to one another on a flight, and we're flying somewhere. Pam is a Christian, you know, and she would rather just sleep on the flight, you know, and that's how it is, but she's feeling a little a little convicted. She says, no, I, I'm someone who knows the gospel message. Good night. There are people willing to go all the way to the Middle East. I have someone, a captive audience right here sitting next to me. So what you want to do, Pam, is start a conversation, as Jonathan so well said, just in a normal conversational tone, and, you know, we'll see where it leads. And I'm going to be the person sitting next to her, and I'll just make believe I have a magazine. You know how people do this. They read magazines just to avoid conversation on a plane. That's how they do it. So can you just start asking me questions, you being a friendly person? Just ask me those questions, and then I'll respond. And you, you kind of watch what happens, okay? Hi. Um, have you ever flown before? Many times. Do you like to fly? <clears throat> Hate it. Me too. <clears throat> you know, I like to have friendly people, though, beside me. Good. My name's Pam. What's your name? Not Pam. Oh, well, that would be odd since you're a man. No. Um, what are you reading? A magazine. Anything interesting? Not at all. Is it about flying? It's about purchasing things duty-free. Oh. They give it to you here on the well, plane. Well, do you like peanuts? Allergic. Oh, dear. Well, and flying's not much fun for you? Hate it. Oh, well, you know, there is this flight pattern that we make sometimes. I fly a lot. And there's this big white cross that we go past. Have you ever seen it? Don't believe in that stuff. Oh, well, uh, it's a big white cross, and that's the church I go to. Have you ever gone to church? Are you a member of the KKK? Oh, no. <laughs> Never. I did live in Pasadena once. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. Same thing. Okay. So, thank you, Pam. You, you did great. Absolutely great. So, um, <laughs> what, what we want to do, uh, so that person was not very conversational. No. You were fantastic. This person was not so hot. Uh, let's do this again a second time and see if you can observe the different kind of responses now this person who you're trying to make conversation with gives. So whatever questions you already asked and can remember, do those again. Oh, dear. <laughs> Hi, do you like to fly? Uh, not really. It makes me, uh, makes me nervous. It stresses me. It hasn't always stressed me out, let me be honest with you. I think it's the cumulative effect of a lot of things now going on in my life, flying being just one. Uh, but it's many things. It's causing sleepless nights and so on and so forth. And so interrupted sleep and even poor appetite, to be honest with you. You know, I, have, I got issues. I got issues. You know, maybe they have some pillows that you can take and maybe yeah. take a nap. It would Thanks so much. Help. Now, the pillow thing is a good idea. I've tried it, but I have like a neck issue. And the pillow, you know, I've, you know, and I've gone to many chiropractors and they've been very, very good, but it seems not to be, not to be working. So if I get my head in a certain angle, I don't know what it, you know what I think it is? When I was a child, when I was a child, that's the way it is. My father, you know, I, I was young. He picked me up, I guess, to horse around as dads are prone to do. He dropped me. Oh, dear. And ever since then, no, don't get me wrong, I forgive my dad. You know, he meant, well, well, I guess I forgive him. Every once in a while, I 
when I think about him, I get a little angry because, you know, he, I don't think he was the kind of dad a dad should be. You know what I mean, don't you? What's your name, by the way? I'm Pam. Pam, thanks so much. Pam, my name is Stuart. Wonderful to meet you. Anyway, yeah, I got some father issues. Well, do you um, live close by? Oh, well, uh, close by with reference to what? To the area where we just came from. Oh, thanks so much. I got you now. I, you know, I misunderstand. I'm a little confused. As I say, I had a lot of stress in my life. So what would seem to be an easy question for someone to answer is not so easy for me. You simply asked, do you live nearby? And for a minute, I got so disoriented, I forgot. <laughs> you know, I, I'm visiting with someone, a doctor, and he's given me something, you know, to try to help me. But to tell you the truth, it's just irritating my stomach. So, okay, good. So that's, that one was a little different than the first time. Customers. <laughs> As you can see. So Pam, what, what's the difference between the first scenario and the second? Well, you wouldn't talk to me on the first one and you over talk to me on the okay, second one. Okay, well said. Thank you, Pam. That's okay. all we need for now. Feel free to take, no, we'll take this microphone. Thank Pam. Thank you so much. So, um, my goodness, Pam was like the best person in the entire church to ask to do that. Thank you so much for doing that, Pam. So, and, and Pam summed it up so well. In the first case, the person said nothing. In the second case, the person just, I mean, erupted with all kinds of stuff. You will rarely have conversation with either of those two people. It's usually in the middle. I wanted to make extreme situations just to, for the sake of illustration. In the first case, the person uh, answered Pam's questions in accordance with principles of normal social courtesy. She asked questions and he gave answers. Just short, brief, fairly curt, concise answers, but he did what uh, society requires when asked a question, he answered. In the second scenario, not only did that person answer the specific question, that person volunteered a truckload of additional information. We could call that free information. He didn't have to volunteer it to Pam. All he had to do is answer the question, but he volunteered free information. Now, I'll tell you something. Most of us do that all the time. Listen in on conversations. Most of us offer free information, and I'll tell you why. We're lonely. We want to be heard, known, recognized, attended to. We want someone to care enough to listen. And so we throw out some free information. It's almost like a test. If the person we're interacting with buys into the free information and connects with it, I will give more free information. But if that person just quickly moves on as if I didn't even say, I didn't offer any free information, I will withhold any other. I just found out that person is not safe. So what we want to do as believers, before we unload the gospel gun, instead of thinking about speaking, we ought to think about listening. This is a biblical principle, by the way. James chapter 1, verse 19. I didn't make this up. It says, therefore, brethren, be slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to anger. So if you tap into free information and that, you, know, you say to someone, how are you doing today? And you expect that person to say, fine. But if that person volunteers more, if that person says, look, um, uh, there are many people 
who are having more difficulties than I am. But since you asked me, today was really a tough day. If you say to that person, oh, that's too bad, I'll pray for you, you'll never get any more free information from that person. You're supposed to be the answer to prayer. You want the person God sent to listen. So instead, someone says, I'm having a bad day. What might you ask next? What's happening? You see, it's a lot. And that person says, well, I just found out that uh, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, there are layoffs at work. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be laid off. I'm going to be laid off. What might you ask next? Okay, good. I hear you. I don't hear you. But anyway, yeah, you might say, you could say something. How does this, how's this impacting on you? Just some. Now, if you, oh, I'm about to be laid off. If you say, well, let me share with you Romans 8, 28 about how God uses all things for the good. It's theologically correct, but truth shared in an untimely way becomes a club. One time I worked with needy pastors. They were crushed for many reasons, and we had a person of influence. Well, several come. Uh, it was a week away with these pastors, and we had pastors in our uh, convention, uh, people of uh, uh, experience and notoriety, come to minister to these broken pastors. And uh, interestingly, many of them shared Romans 8.28. And I had one of the participant, participating pastors who was hurting say to me, Stuart, if I hear someone share Romans 8.28 uh, one more time, I'm going to kill somebody. You, you, so, so, you know, we're thinking when we talk about sharing the gospel, we're thinking about quickly getting into things. Why not ask some normal questions? What is your name? Were you born here? How long have you been here? What's it like to live here? And then tap into free information. If you're listening, by the way, I'll tell you a trade secret. As a professional counselor, that's how we make our, our money. You come in. We have no idea what to say to you. You come in, and we say stuff like, how are you today? And you say, not very well. I feel very depressed. Now, you just gave free information, you see? So the counselor is listening and simply saying, depressed. How long have you been depressed? And that person says, well, it comes and goes, but really for longer than I can remember. And then the counselor says, what are the effects of depression on you, it being there for so long? Anyway, you go on. So, uh, and at the end of the session, you say, okay, thank you. That'll be $150. See you next week. That's kind of, you too can be a professional counselor, I'm telling you. It actually, I'm being facetious, but it's a listening skill. It's not a speaking skill because people need the opportunity of being known, being heard, being listened to, getting things out. So why do I bring all this up? Well, because Paul said we are to grow up into all aspects with him. So we are to have balanced growth. We are to try to develop in all areas of our life. And I suppose the Lord Jesus is the best example of balanced growth. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 2 verse 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom. That's intellectually and stature. That's physically and in favor with God. That's spiritually and men. 
That's relationally. Can you see it? The Lord, as a human, developed in a balanced way. And by the way, so too did the Apostle Paul. We know, having gone through Romans, what a keen intellect and astute theologian he was. He's teaching us the doctrinal pearl of the Bible, the letter to the Romans. But he also manifested very significant relational skills. And so at the end of his magnificent doctrinal jewel, the book of Romans, he takes time to recognize a number of people with whom he had established friendships, very close relationships. And just to give you a sampling, let me now direct your attention to, this is the last chapter in Romans. Now, we're not finishing tonight, but we're getting close. Romans chapter 16, take a look, verse 1. Romans 16, verse 1. Here's what it says. Paul's writing. I commend to you our sister, Phoebe, who's a servant of the church, which is at Sencrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Paul here is writing a note of recommendation on behalf of a lady named Phoebe. And he refers to her as a sister and servant. In fact, we read, she served the church which is at Sencrea. Sencrea is a small town about five miles east of Corinth, Greece, modern-day Greece. Phoebe is here commended by Paul as someone who's been a helper of many, including Paul himself. Why is Paul writing this note of commendation on her behalf? In fact, he tells the Roman believers to receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Why does Paul say this on her behalf? I think it's probably because Phoebe is carrying Paul's letter to the Romans. To the Romans! I think Phoebe is the letter carrier. So you have Paul, the great, no, perhaps the greatest apostle, but he still needed help. And you know who helped him? A Gentile woman. Wow, two strikes. Of all people, the astute rabbi Paul, the great apostle, he needed help. And he referred to Phoebe as someone who was a great source of help. She's referred to as a servant of the church at Sencrea. By the way, you see the word servant? How about a little controversy? This will be good. Uh, uh, the word servant is the word from which we get our word deacon. Deacon. Diakonos. Same word. Why? Well, because, because a deacon is the one who serves. So is Phoebe a deacon? Is she a deaconess? Well, the answer is Yes in the sense that she is one who serves. But is she a deaconess in the sense of one holding the official office of deacon? I think the best answer there is maybe. And now let's move on. Really, that's what it comes down to. You can make a case that she was an official office holder in the church, deaconess, ministering particularly to ladies, in the same sense in which we have deacons today. You could say that, but another case could be made. No, 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 no. This is referring to a deaconess in the general sense of serving, one who, one who serves. 
So I don't know for sure what it is, but I do know this for sure. Neither a man nor a woman is worthy of any church office if that person needs that church office to serve. (laughs) I think when you're looking for someone to occupy a church office, you're looking for someone already serving without the office. If someone is waiting for a church appointment, it's an official designation, before they live for the glory of God, before they serve other believers, that person doesn't qualify, male or female, for any church office, it, it seems to me. You know what this church does? I think, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn. I think when it comes to the process of selecting deacons in this church, all that the deacon selection body is doing is recognizing <laughs> those already serving as deacons and then wanting to come alongside them and as a church officially recognizing them as duly appointed deacons in the church. In other words, if you choose someone who's doing nothing and then you want him to grow into the position of deacon, oh boy, you've got the wrong person, it seems to me. So anyway, her name, Phoebe, is quite interesting because it's a common name in Greek mythology. In fact, it comes from the same root word as Apollos, the Greek mythological god. So you say, why didn't Phoebe, when she became a Christian, why didn't she change her name? Why is she going around with a name from Greek mythology based on Apollos? (sighs) She could have, but you know something? She's more, you're more, I'm more than our names. We're more than our, our past, are we not? Isn't the essence of our being not where we came from and who we used to be and the names people called us, good or bad? Isn't the essence of our identity having to do with the fact that we've been adopted into God's family by faith in the only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the the essence of our being now. We stand not any longer by any other primary designation is that except that we are sons and daughters of almighty God regardless of what others named us in times past forget it it's all over therefore if anyone's in Christ he is a what kind of creation new creature the old has passed away so maybe Phoebe thought oh come on I don't care what my parents named me I'm glad now my name is inscribed in the Lamb's book of life so she didn't she didn't change her her name and now beginning in verse 3 all the way to verse 16 Paul shows us an entirely different side of himself look we know him as the great apostle missionary church planter theologian but now we get to see him as a friend of many diverse people in other words he wasn't one dimensional he was theologically and relationally sound let's get a glimpse of Paul the people person look at verse 3 Greet Prisca, Uh, she's also referred to in the Bible as Priscilla, it's the same thing. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. She, along with Aquila, her husband, are referred to as Paul's fellow workers. Interestingly, she, another woman in Paul's list, she is named before her husband. That's not typical. Why? Well, it's possible she's named before her husband because though they were both fellow workers, she was the more significant fellow worker of Paul. It's possible, very, very possible. I don't know that for sure. All I know is here's the second woman in Paul's list recognized as someone he held in high esteem. Now, Aquila, her husband was Jewish, a tent maker, 
from the Roman province of Pontus. Well, that is until he and his wife were driven out of Rome by the Edict of Claudius in A.D. 49. He was a Roman emperor, and the edict said, no more Jews in my territory. So he, he kicked out all the Jews. Uh, you know, they call us wandering Jews for more reason than one. We always sleep with a suitcase under our beds. We just never know when the host country is going to say, we had enough of you. Uh, so anyway, they left, and they, when they were thrown out of Rome, they went to Corinth, and that's where, according to Acts chapter 18, they met Paul and developed a relationship with him. And he describes what they did in verse 4. He says, who for my life risked their own necks? How? We don't know. We're not told. But they risked their lives for his. To whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So they were grateful. Gentile people were grateful for what Priscilla and Aquila did in saving Paul's life because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Though a Jew, he was primarily sent to take the gospel to Gentiles. And Gentile churches uh, came to faith by accepting the gospel and grew up. And they were so grateful that Paul was alive so as to carry on his ministry. And then Paul says in verse 5, also greet the church in their house. Church in their house? Yep. In the early days, that's where believers met, in homes. They met there for teaching, Bible teaching. They met there for worship. They met there for prayer. You see, the church, really for the first two centuries, think about it, of its existence, uh, did not meet in a building. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't get together uh, for special events from time to time, but they mostly met in houses, house churches. They did this for about the first two centuries. Why did they do it? Well, because there was a lot of persecution for one thing. And the whole notion of a centralized building to go for prayer and worship and teaching, it just didn't happen yet. Now, folks, though um, house churches were definitely the way early Christians met, it would be, in my opinion, wrong to assume that's the model for all of us today. Some are trying to make that point. But they're missing the point. This is the acts of the apostle. This is what they did historically. Different times, situations, and circumstances change today. So if people want to meet in house churches, in some places, China and others, they have to because of uh, uh, persecution. But that is not the standard model today. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages. There's a lot of impetus being given today for home groups, cell groups, and all the rest. Uh, and uh, my take on it um, is that there are advantages and disadvantages. One of the big advantages of a house church or a group meeting together is relationship development. Good night. You'll get to know everyone. If someone is missing, that person will be noticeable by his or her absence. So that's really a good thing. Uh, no one falls through the cracks. But the disadvantage is the potential for aberrant theology to creep in. Does the house church leader have sufficient training in teaching, in expositing scripture. And so you have a lot of things coming out of house churches that's a real distortion of good biblical theology. So it's to me, it's kind of a mixed bag, but surely not the model for everyone in any case. Then Paul says, greet Eponetus, my beloved. 
who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Listen, if God ever gives you the chance to lead, to share the gospel, and lead your first person to the Lord, do you think you're going to forget that person? <laughs> that person's name? I remember uh, now the first person I had a chance to lead to the Lord was in the military a million years ago. I know his name. His nickname was Mac. He's a big guy, big guy, Mac. I had a privilege of, of leading him to the Lord and then discipling him. I remember, I remember like it was, I mean, it was, it was kind of like birthing a child. It was sort of like, it's like a spiritual, spiritual child. Well, Paul says, he remembers Ebenezer. He's the first convert to Christ in Asia. Not Asia as you think of it. That's actually um, Western, modern-day Turkey. Uh, Paul was there on his third missionary journey, and that's where Eponidas came to know the Lord. Number six, greet Mary, who has worked hard. Here's another woman in the list, and she also is called a great worker. She's worked hard for you. You know, you know what the ladies in Paul's list did? They didn't wait for permission to serve God and honor him. If they were... Uh, uh, Considered even second-class citizens, as that society did, so too does ours. They restrained bitterness, and they just said, I will serve the Lord whether you give me a title or not. Not rebelliously, not obstinately, but there's always things we can do for the glory of Christ, even without official recognition. So Mary's another one. By the way, she's Jewish. How do I know that? Her name is not Mary, it's Miriam, Miriam, Miriam. And so we know that she is Mary. Which Mary? We don't have any idea. We don't know anything else about this Jewish Miriam except that Paul said she worked hard. That's what it says. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Andronicus and Junius were either husband and wife or brother and sister. We don't know for sure. Paul refers to them as his kinsmen, meaning they're Jewish. So you've had some Gentile people in the list, and now you've got some Jewish people in the list. Paul says they were imprisoned with him, and they were believers before Paul. They came to know the Lord before even he did. And then it says they were outstanding among the apostles. Some make the case that they were outstanding apostles. Therefore, they were uh, apostles in the sense in which Paul was an apostle. I don't think that's accurate. I think when it says they were outstanding among the apostles, it means they were well thought of by those very limited group who wrote Scripture and who are called apostles. So uh, you're entitled to your opinion on that, but I just told you the truth. Then it says, verse 8, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our, it comes from the word urbane or urban, city dweller. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. We know from Roman uh, inscriptions that these names are very often those assigned to slaves. So you have Jews in this list and Gentiles. You have males and females. You have slave and free. Verse 10, greet Apelles. The approved in Christ. Approved in Christ. How? We don't know. Somehow there was a test, a circumstance, a tough mountain to climb, and this person proved himself to be trust. 
worthy. And that's the appellation he's given here. When you think of this man, Apelles, think of him as being trustworthy, faithful in Christ. Folks, we all want to be successful. <laughs> okay, good. But I think it's better, more important to be faithful than to be successful. It's very interesting to me how some in ministry uh, uh, are able uh, to be used of God to produce very large churches, but others doing exactly the same things uh, uh, don't, don't see those results. Now, there are many explanations I know, but I, uh, I laud the ones uh, laboring faithfully even without uh, dramatic uh, physical uh, numerical results. When we stand before God, I think he's going to He's going to hold us accountable for whether we've slugged away no matter what, whether we've been faithful, serving as if for an audience of one, not because of impressive numbers, um, nothing wrong with numbers, don't misunderstand, but I'm just saying there are many, 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 we're in a big church, so this is not really the norm. This is not, you know, the, the average size church out there is about 65 people in the United States, much smaller elsewhere. One time I was in Kansas, and I spoke to a group of Baptist pastors. Not one was able to fully be in the ministry. They were all bivocational. They worked in a farm community. I thought to myself, oh, God, I don't know if I'd be as faithful as these fellas. They're slugging away. Marrying people, burying people, making hospital visits, being there to offer good spiritual guidance and counsel, preaching the word of God, sharing as God opens doors of opportunity, sharing the gospel. So uh, uh, they're like this fellow named here, approved, faithful. Then Paul says, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. It's very likely that Aristobulus was the grandson of Herod the Great and a close friend of this cruel emperor, Claudius. He was not a believer. Paul is greeting not Aristobulus. Notice, he is greeting those in his household. Paul knew that there were slaves or servants in the household of Aristobulus who, though enslaved, found freedom in Christ Jesus. And Paul is greeting that he's bypassing Aristobulus and he's addressing the members of his household, plantation, if you will. And he's saying, as far as the world is concerned, you're being put upon. But as far as the Lord Jesus is concerned, you're royalty. And I greet you as a fellow brother in Christ. That's what he does. Verse 11, greet Herodion, my kinsman. Very possible that this person belonged to Herod's family. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Now get this. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Those are three women. Tryphena and Tryphosa are almost certainly sisters. In fact, probably twin sisters. We can discern this from the names. Tryphena and Tryphosa come from exactly the same Greek word. In fact, their names respectively mean dainty, dainty and delicate. Interesting that dainty and delicate were referred to by Paul as powerful, mighty workers in the Lord. They didn't let their uh, uh, femininity, their daintiness, keep them 
from being mighty for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knows them by name and is recognizing them. Here again, Persis comes from the word Persia. She was probably, Persia is modern day Iran, Iran. So she was a non-Jew and uh, uh, met up with Paul somewhere along the way, came to know the Lord. And you got three women here. Once again, Paul says they have worked hard in the Lord. Uh, women. You are oftentimes left out, marginalized, and discounted. It's just a fact. It, it's not acceptable, but it's a reality. Please, please, don't let uh, the prejudice and wrongdoing of uh, those of us who are non-women, don't let that extinguish the fire in your life to serve the God-man who will never underestimate, subordinate, exploit or discount your contributions. Don't do that. So they didn't, these particular ladies. Verse 13, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. What? Is this Paul's brother? No, 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 no. When he says his mother and mine, it means Rufus's mom extended such care and kindness to Paul, it was like what you expect from a mother. Now, who is this Rufus? It's possible that this Rufus is the one mentioned in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Listen, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of, here we go, Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Simon was enlisted to be one to carry the horizontal crossbar. It's called the patibulum of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible that this Rufus is that Simon's son. If he is Cyrene, that means he's a North African. He's a black man. Wow. In Paul's list of those at the end of his doctrinal masterpiece, who's remembering by name, there are Jews and Gentiles and there are men and women and there are slaves and free and there are blacks and whites for crying out loud. This text says a lot for crying out loud. You know what this reminds me of? Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Not by the reckoning of society, I got that. Not by the reckoning of the culture, I got that. By the reckoning of Almighty God. He leveled the playing field at the foot of the cross, and he took every one of us just as we are. And we better, just as Paul did, Hold each other in high esteem and show respect, even though people in the body of Christ are different than you or than me. Verse 16, greet one another. This is how he closes, with a holy kiss. Now hang in there. Don't get nervous. All the churches of Christ greet you. Holy kiss. That was, in Paul's day, the mode of affectionate greeting expressed amongst believers. In fact, it's still practiced in some parts of the world. I took my son Ben when he was just a little kid to Siberia years ago. I think I shared this with you. I did it because he was complaining about the small size of his bedroom. He says, my friends have bigger bedrooms. I said, that's it. I'm taking this kid to Siberia. I said, I'm going to show, give him a reality check. We did. Took him to Siberia. They have nothing. They have nothing. We got home. He never complained about the size of his bedroom. I mean, he had a bed, that kind of deal. Now, because I so embittered him, he became a cop. You know what I mean? 
That's what happened. He went in that direction. But anyway, uh, in Russia, when we ministered there in various churches, house churches and others, they still do the holy kiss thing. So here's a guy, and he's coming right at you, and you know, oh, no, here it comes. Here's it going. You try to fade to the right, you know what I mean, and fade to the left, and everything, just catch up with you and stuff like this. And, and I'm saying, Ben, Ben, you know, we, we just, it's just a small price to pay. You know, look what Jesus did for us. Don't worry, we'll wash later. Everything is cool. But anyway, that's how they still do it. It's a holy kiss. There's nothing erotic about it. Nothing like that. But the equivalent, let's not start doing that here. The equivalent of the holy kiss <laughs> is a good hearty handshake or a good pat on the back. Or a, what did David say earlier? Let's give, give out four hugs. Remember, David? That's the equivalent of the, of the holy kiss. It just means greet each other warmly. Don't pass. You're Christians together. What if it's someone of a different race? Holy kiss. What if it's someone different gender? Holy kiss. Different age, different background, different ethnicity. Come on. We all pray our Father. We're in the family, folks. Might as well get used to it. We're stuck with each other for eternity. Might as well get used to it. So a good hearty handshake, a sincere hug, a good pat on the back. That's what Paul, you know what Paul's point is in all this? What's he teaching us in this masterpiece of doctrinal teaching? He's teaching us about the importance of warm and supportive relationships among us. It's hugely important. He's teaching us that um, we're not called to be Christians in isolation. We're called to be Christians in association with other Christians. He's teaching us we're sheep. Do you know we're sheep who isn't part of a flock? We're supposed to flock together. That's the way it is. Folks, I believe, uh, think about what you, what you think about this. I, I think it's likely that Christians, most used of God, are those who have sufficient relational skills to make friends and impact on them. So you can get your theology all together. But if you're uh, unapproachable, if you're unkind, if you're argumentative, if you're mean, if you're impatient, if you're too much a preacher and not as much a listener in personal conversation with people, if you're rushing to unload the gospel, uh, something deeply significant and personal, but you haven't even personally gotten to know the person you're sharing with, mm. I... I wonder if Paul is saying, don't do that. Grow up into all aspects. Yeah, be theologically sound, but also develop relational skills. I think that's what he's saying That In fact, the Carnegie Technological Institute, and I know nothing about that, but isn't it impressive sounding? The Carnegie Technological Institute did a study, and they stated in conclusion that 90% of all people, they found this, who fail in their life's vocation, fail because they can't get along with other people. I wonder if the people out there aren't so much when they do. I wonder if it's not so much that they're rejecting the gospel. I wonder if they're rejecting us. I wonder if we're just not friendly, not kind, not conversational, not relational. I just, I just, I just, I was at a wedding not too long ago. Oh, my goodness. And a very well-intentioned fellow Christian was there. And there were people um, who, who did not know the Lord and so on. It was a small group. And this particular person cornered, I mean cornered one. No introduction, no, how are you? My name is so-and-so, what's your name? No, welcome to our church. It, it, was, it, was, it was kind of like, um, 
kind of like, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? Listen, that's a great question. But the timing of it seemed to me uh, to be a little out of place. How about hello? <laughs> you know, that's like not a bad story. So this person had evangelistic zeal, but no relational skills. And then this person went away feeling like the martyr because the gospel was attempted to be shared and it was rejected. But I'll take up my cross and bear it. But I don't think this person rejected the gospel. The person didn't even hear it because you didn't soften up the person's ears and win a right, uh, uh, soften up the person's heart and, and win a hearing for the gospel because that person's rejecting you. You are a creep. They're rejecting you. The gospel is attractive. It's good news. You're not good news. You're bad news. So, so here's the deal. I think Paul is, has taught us in this passage in verse 16 that a, a fruitful soul winner is probably also an effective friend maker. A fruitful soul winner is probably also an effective friend maker. Let's work on that. That's why I love what these people are going to do in the Middle East. We start. We don't stop. We start with friendship, with friendly conversation, with relationship development. And we ask God to move it to the most vital, necessary, critical message on earth. How is a sinner going to answer a holy God when the sinner is called to give account? That is hugely important. The answer has to be, just as I am without one plea, but that thy son died for me. That's where we want to go. But to get there, we have to win people to ourselves first. And so I think this text is showing me the most astute theologian of his day, the most theologically sound and most brilliant missionary of his day, made friends with Jews and with Gentiles, with blacks and with whites, and with old people and young people, with males and with females with rich people and with poor people, and how dare we do bless. So we pray, Lord Jesus, not as an end in itself, but as a means to the end, that you would give us favor with the people around us. Lord, we pray that they would like us, because it's harder to reject what someone is saying, if you like them. Oh, God, help us not to bypass the importance of developing friendships, relationships, always with a view, always with a view to turning the conversation to the vertical dimension. But the means to that end, oh, God, is to be attractive, to be friendly, to be endearing, to be skillful relationally. Oh God, we want to know well what we believe because we want to express truth, but we want to do it in a loving, relationally skillful manner. Help us therefore, oh God, as you did with Paul, help us to grow up into all aspects unto you. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.